for the last 2,000 years, no man's identity has been as hotly debated as the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. He was a carpenter, and yet he was no ordinary carpenter. If you were a Jew living at the time, no doubt you would have heard and seen this man do extraordinary things, things which no man who came before him had done. Miraculous signs and wonders, healings. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear. You would have seen big crowds follow him. You would have heard him teach with authority, unlike the authority of your chief priests and your scribes. You would have heard him make claims, staggering claims about his own identity, often veiled, but claims that would leave you scratching your head. Did he really just say he was God? But there were other times where his claims were crystal clear, which is why it says in John 5.18, some of the Jews were seeking to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. So if you had lived 2,000 years ago, it would have been very difficult for you to debate that at a minimum, Jesus was a man who performed signs and wonders and taught with unusual authority. You may have even believed that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the one who the Jews knew would come and liberate his own people from Roman oppression. But God? God himself? Really? Now fast forward to the present time, and what is amazing is that the same debate exists today. In a recent survey done by Ligonier Ministries, people were asked whether or not they believed that Jesus was divine. And as you would probably guess, 52% of those surveyed viewed Jesus of Nazareth as nothing more than a great man, while 48% believed he was divine, that he was God, which is not surprising. But what you may find surprising, I certainly did, was that in the same survey, only 67%, two-thirds of those who would call themselves evangelicals, believe that Jesus is divine, meaning that one-third of evangelicals, so churchgoers, in the U.S. today do not believe that Jesus is God. So the debate continues. One of Jesus' disciples, the Apostle John, had a great burden when he wrote his gospel. His desire was that his readers would come to understand and believe that Jesus the carpenter, born in a manger in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, doing much of his earthly ministry in Galilee, away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem, that this man Jesus was, in fact, God. Just listen to what John writes in John 20, 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so God himself, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So here's my question this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is God? 
Or are you uncertain? And why does it matter anyway? My hope and prayer this morning is that we all see that Jesus is God, and in him, and in him alone, can we have life and have it abundantly. So with that, I would ask that you open your Bibles to John chapter 1. For those who need a Bible, they are underneath the chair in front of you. You can grab my gray outline, the insert in your bulletin. Page 886, if you're using one of the proclamation Bibles, and we're going to read the first five verses of John chapter 1. So John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John starts off his gospel by calling Jesus the Word. But how do we know that John is talking about Jesus? Well, if you look down to verse 14 of the same chapter, it says that the Word, the same Word used in verse 1, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is referencing Jesus, who came in the flesh and dwelt among his people as the Word. And if you were a Jew living in John's day, you would have immediately understood John's reference to the Word, because the Jews knew their Old Testaments. And in the Old Testament, God's Word was, in a way, synonymous with God himself. So Genesis 15.1, the Word of the Lord came to Abram. 1 Kings 6.11, the Word of the Lord came to Solomon. So not the Lord himself came, he did, but the word of the Lord came. And there were interpretations of the Hebrew Old Testament that substituted the Lord, or Yahweh, with the word of the Lord. So in the mind of the Jews, the word was, point one on your outline, synonymous with God himself, as well as point two, God's powerful self-expressions. The Jews would have known passages like Psalm 33, 6, which says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God's word goes forth and his purposes are fulfilled. That's his powerful self-expression. Now let's compare God's words with our words for a moment. Or let's compare God's words to my words. This should be fun. Are there times where I say things I don't mean? Yes, of course. Are there times where I have good intentions but bad follow-through? Absolutely. So I'll say... I'll call you later today, and what do I do? I get busy. I don't call. My words are far from perfect. God's word, on the other hand, 
is perfect. It is the perfect, powerful self-expression of who he is. So he says what he means and he does what he says. So he does not say one thing and do another. When God speaks, whatever he says, whatever he commands, happens. It comes to pass. God uses his words to express his desires, his motivations, his intentions, his purposes. It is his powerful expression of himself, which is why it never returns empty. This should be such a comfort to us this morning. Why? Because everything that God says in this word about himself is true. Everything that God says in this word about the Lord Jesus is true. Everything God says, every promise that he makes comes to pass. So we can take him at his word every single time. Why? Because God's word is the perfect, powerful expression of God himself. So we have A, the word defined, and now B, the word Creates. Let's look again at the first three verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, when the Jews would have read in the beginning, they would have known the reference immediately. There's only one other book in the Bible that starts with the words in the beginning, and that's Genesis, where we have the creation account. So let's turn to Genesis 1. We are going to flip a couple times this morning. It's on page 1, if you're using the Proclamation Bibles, first book of the Bible. I'll read the first five verses of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So Genesis 1 starts off in the beginning, God created. So before anything else existed, God was. The earth was formless and void, and yet God was there in the beginning, creating Now put this together. John 1 says that the word is Jesus and that through the word, through Jesus, all things were made. And here in Genesis, we have God speaking and through his word, all things are made. So God speaks and through his word, through Jesus, all things are made. And we see here in verse 2, 
the Spirit hovering over the face of the water. So we have the Trinity, God the Father speaking through God the Son, through Jesus the Word, and God the Spirit hovering over the face of the deep, which is why John can say, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word creates is God's powerful self-expression. Again, Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be accomplished that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God's word, Jesus, is power, full of power, powerful enough to create. Let's be clear on this. The earth is without form and Void. Other translations would have formless and empty. There's nothing there. Try to get your minds around formless and empty. There's no light. There's no life. There's nothing. One word from God, light. We get light. This, my friends, is a great God. This is a powerful God. This is a God who, through Jesus, creates something out of nothing. Skip down to verse 9 of Genesis 1. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered, and it was so. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and it was so. Verse 20, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above. Verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And it was so. Here's a question. How many different kinds of birds do you think there are today in existence? Like species of birds. Over 11,000. My research said 11,158, to be exact. But here's another question. How many actual birds do you think there are in existence today? Some would say over 40 billion. Others would say over 400 billion, which is a wide range. But either way, that is a lot of birds. And every single one, God speaks, and they come into his being, and they come into being through Jesus, through his word. That's power. That's creation power. And John is saying that by Jesus, through Jesus, all of this happens. Creation happens through Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there is only one response to that kind of Power. There is only one proper response to that kind of power, and that's worship. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. Let's worship the Lord Jesus, our Creator this season, for He has made us and we are His. So Jesus is the Word. He's the powerful word, through whom all things were made. In fact, without him was not anything made that was made. He was in the beginning with God. 
as God. And he came down. He came down to earth in the form of a man. So moving on to point C, the word became flesh. Flip back with me to John 1. I want us to take a look at verse 14 again because I want us to be crystal clear here this morning of who Jesus is. John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 2.9 puts it this way, that in him the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily. This is the incarnation. This is why we celebrate Christmas. God came down to earth in the form of a man. God the Son, who is in the beginning with God, as God, before time and space, takes on humanity. He becomes, if you will, the God-man. He's fully God, and he's fully man. God the Son wraps himself, if you will, in bodily form, a human body. This is amazing that the God of all the universe becomes a living, breathing, crying human life, born of a woman in a cattle trough because there's no room for them in the inn that God the Son, through whom the whole world was created and sustained, by the way, that's Hebrews 1.3, that Jesus sustains the world by the word of his power, The creator and sustainer of life, Jesus, relies on his mother, Mary, for sustenance. Jesus, the baby, does not live if his mother, Mary, does not feed him. The God-man, the creator and sustainer of life, must be sustained by his mother. And he grows up as a carpenter. Isaiah 53 says, he had no form that we should look at him. Meaning there's nothing about him that looked impressive. During his earthly ministry, he says of himself, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Meaning he's totally dependent on others to give him a place to sleep at night. And this is God. That's incredible to think about. So the God-man comes down, and point D, he performs miracles, signs and wonders, none of which were debated in his day, by the way. I mean, everyone who was around him saw miraculous things happen. They saw him turn water into wine, that's John 2. They saw him heal a dying boy, that's John 4. They saw him say to a man who had been lame for 38 years, years, take up your bed and walk. That's John 5. They saw his power over food. Five measly loaves of bread and two fish feeds thousands 
of people. That's John 6. They see his ability to walk on water. No buoy, no flotation device. They see him heal a man born blind. That's John 9. And they see him raise a dead man back to life. So one more turn in your Bibles with me this morning to John 11. It's on page 897, if you're using the proclamation Bibles. And as you're turning, I just want to be clear again. These miracles, these signs, were not debated in Jesus' day. But today, 2,000 years later, it's a different story. And I get it. It's hard today to wrap our minds around miracles like this. The author J.I. Packer is very helpful here. He says in his book, Knowing God, it is no wonder that thoughtful people find the gospel of Jesus Christ so hard to believe for the realities with which it deals pass our understanding. Take the gospel miracles. Many find a source of difficulty here. Granted, the gospels say that Jesus healed that he walked on water, that he fed 5,000, that he raised the dead. Stories like this are surely quite incredible. But in fact, the real mystery, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us does not lie here at all. The really staggering claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man, that he took on humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly divine as he was human. If Jesus had been no more than a very remarkable, godly man, the difficulties in believing what the New Testament tells us about his life and work would be truly mountainous. But if Jesus was the same person as the eternal word, the Father's agent in creation, it is no wonder if fresh acts of creative power marked his coming into the world. Let's look at John chapter 11. Most of you know the story of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, is ill and word gets to Jesus that his friend Lazarus is sick, so he decides to stay where he is for two more days. Lazarus dies, so Jesus heads to Lazarus' home in Bethany where his sisters and many others are mourning his death. And by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. So verse 21, Martha meets Jesus and asks what took him so long, essentially. And Jesus replies. Then Mary goes on, comes out to Jesus and says the very same thing. Just look at John, or verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, 
Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. And I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, and his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. So Lazarus has been dead for four days. There's no debate. He's dead. And three powerful words from Jesus, Lazarus, come forth. No longer dead. He's alive. Because Jesus commanded that he live. That's power. In a way, that's creation power. That's resurrection power. Life out of death. I asked a question at the beginning. Does Jesus being God matter? I mean, does it really matter? Perhaps a better way to ask the question would be, does Jesus being the God-man matter? Does it really matter that God came down? It matters. It matters a lot. He came down for one reason. We celebrate Christmas for one reason. The Lord Jesus Christ, the in the beginning, through whom all things were made, God came down. Why? To die. To die on a cross for our sins, the sins of those who would but believe in him. And they shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So he comes down from his place in heaven to earth to die. And here is why Jesus being the God-man matters ultimately. He dies and we get life. In fact, we get life and light. Turn with me back to John chapter 1. We're on point 2 now. The word gives life. Look with me at verse 4. In him, the word, Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, when John says, in him was life, he's not talking about raising the dead to life. At least, he's not talking about that mainly. You see, his miracles, his signs are just that. They're signs. They're like a street sign letting you know that there's construction. 
up ahead. They're pointers. They're physical pointers to spiritual realities. And the spiritual reality that we need to get a hold of this morning is that in him, in Jesus, is life. Spiritual life. New life. Eternal life. But how? Hebrews 2.14 says it this way, that he himself, the God-man, Jesus, had to take on flesh, had to come down, so that through his death, he might destroy the power of death. So if he doesn't come down, if he doesn't die, death is not destroyed, and we have no life. If he doesn't come down and die for us in our place, we have no hope. We have nothing. We face certain judgment. We would face certain judgment when we die. So he needed to take on flesh so that he could come and die in our place for our sins. Now, if you are new here this morning, this might be a lot for you. Some of these ideas might be new concepts for you. I totally get that. Perhaps you can see Jesus is a great man. Perhaps you can even get yourself to a place where you see him as a man who performs signs, wonders, miracles. But the God-man? And even if he is the God-man, so what? Why does that matter to me today? If that's you, then you need to understand, and I do not say this lightly, but you are on a dangerous path. The Bible, the word of God, is very clear that a judgment is coming. And when you die, which you will, you will see God face to face. And you will be required to give an account for how you spent your life. Now, we all sin. It's not debatable. We know that. We all think, think things we shouldn't think. We say things we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. We're not perfect. Did you know that the Bible says that God requires perfection? God is God, and there is no other. God is God, and he is perfect. He's holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And he has made it very clear in his word that all sin must be punished. There isn't one place in the Bible where it says he'll sweep even one sin under the rug. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And that's not just talking about physical death, but spiritual death, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. That's hell. But here's the good news. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, came down to earth in the form of a man to die, to take your place. The death you deserve to die because of your sin, he dies instead. The God-man Jesus was crucified in your place if you will but believe in him. And did you know, like Lazarus, Jesus rose from the dead. He came back 
to life. Who Jesus is matters tremendously to you this morning. In fact, I would say that it matters more than anything else. So I invite you this morning, cling to him, receive him, believe in him. You have no other hope than in Christ. And if you will but believe, your sins will be forgiven. No more fear of death, no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You get life. In him was life. You get new life in Christ. Eternal life with him forever. But you must come. And for those of you who have put your faith in Christ already, Jesus as the God-man matters to you tremendously as well. You know it does. Because you have been given new life in Jesus. You have new life in Christ. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you have been made alive with Christ. You have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's 1 Peter 1. You have been given new life in Christ. So what does that mean exactly? What are some of the implications of new life in Christ? Well, for starters, new life in Christ means, point two, that your death is behind you. Glory in this truth. The death you deserve for your sins happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. The day you believed the free offer of salvation, Jesus' death was credited to your account. His death became your death. He died in your place, meaning you don't have to die. You will never die spiritually. It's over. Your death is over. John puts it this way in John 11, 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. This is Jesus talking. Whoever believes in me, though he die, experience physical death, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you understand the significance of that statement? New life in Christ means you will never die. Of course you will experience physical death. Peter talks about the putting off of our bodies. That's 2 Peter 2. But that's not real death. In fact, that's life. That's even better life. That's gain. Philippians 1 says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Your death is over. It's behind you. Christ died in your place. Which also means, point three, 
that as a Christian with new life in Christ, you have the hope of eternal life. One day you will see the God-man face to face. You will see Christ. You will one day be presented before the presence of his glory with great joy without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You will hear those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. When we die, we get glory. We get him. It's only going to get better infinitely better. We will receive the immeasurable riches of his grace forever. Every single day of your life puts you one step closer to glory. Think about it that way. Your life, we're all getting older, of course. Every Tomorrow, closer to glory than today. I made it through another day. I'm closer to seeing him face to face. By the way, this is why as Christians, we should be the most joyful people on the planet. We have an inexpressible joy that is filled with glory in spite of our circumstances. And I know that there are many of us, that there are some of you here this morning that are going through hard things, really hard things. And yet, we have received the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So for the Christian, new life in Christ is death behind us, eternal life in front of us, all because the word has given us life. In him we have life, which, by the way, is just another way of saying that in him we have light. Jesus is not only the spiritual life giver, but also point B, the spiritual light giver. Giver. When John says, in him was life, and life, the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. He's using light and life interchangeably, meaning being raised from the dead, from death to life, is the same thing as being, as 1 Peter 1 says, called out of his darkness into marvelous light. Jesus says about himself, I am the light of the world. That's John 8. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So being made alive in Jesus, in Christ, is the same as saying we've been called into his marvelous light. And I think the Lord is so gracious and kind as to give us the imagery of light. It's so helpful. The eye is drawn to light. It's why we put up Christmas lights. It's why we love bright, sunny days. It's why we love beautiful sunrises and sunsets. If we can grasp the two great truths, 
Our death is behind us. It's over. The hope of eternal life is in front of us. We have life everlasting. It frees us up to walk as children of the light today. New life in Christ, walking as children of the light, looks like something now. It's loving others, considering others more significant than yourselves, serving others, delivering meals to families in our congregation who have newborns. There are a lot of them these days. It's sharing with others who don't know Christ. But that walk isn't always easy, is it? Walking as children of the light is a battle. I think it's a daily battle. In fact, I would say I think it's even an hourly battle. What does life look like for you this afternoon? What does life look like for you tomorrow? What deadlines do you have at work? Where are your relationships stressful right now? We have a lot coming at us, don't we? Our culture, the world, the flesh, the devil, trials, tribulations, sickness, a global pandemic, political strife, hate speech, police showing up at my daughter's school this week because of threats of violence on social media. It can be hard to walk as lights, as children of the light. So what do we do? What can we do now to counterbalance all that we see around us, to live the new life in Christ, walk as children of the light today, tomorrow, the next day? Here's what I think we need to do. We need to make a habit of looking up at the light, at the light of the world, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to gaze at the light, the source of light, the creator of light, the giver of light. How? We need to read our Bibles. We need to open up the word and we need to look, we need to stare at Jesus, especially, I think, in the Gospels, which chronicle his life. We see how he lived how he carried himself, the things he said, the things he did, the things he cared about. We read about his humility, his meekness, his servant-heartedness, his wisdom, his love, his passion, his compassion, his leadership. We see his innate ability to be able to say hard things in a loving way. We see his innate ability to be able to take a conversation about seemingly nothing and turn it into a gospel conversation. And we gaze at him. We get to know him better. And when that happens, what happens? Our lives become more like his life. And we walk as children of the light. So here's a thought. I would just call it a challenge this Christmas season for all of you. And this would be whether you know or love and love Jesus or you think you need more information. How about you spend the next two weeks 
the remaining weeks of Advent just sitting, reading the Gospel of John, sitting in it, meditating on it, gazing at the light. Maybe you even read it twice. And you ask the Spirit to help you see the God-man more clearly or perhaps for the first time. Because it matters. Not only do matters of eternal significance hang in the balance, but the matters that you need to deal with tomorrow and Tuesday. If you do this, if you stare at him long enough, not just for the next two weeks, but next year and the year after that, you will become more like him and you will be transformed by him into his image and you will walk more productively as a child of the light. And as you gaze at the light and walk as a child of the light, here's what happens. The lure of sin, which only casts a shadow on the light, totally loses its power. Who wants to be in the dark? We need to be staring at the light. Light is so much better than darkness. I'll close with this, one of my favorite verses. This is Proverbs 4, 18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full of day, until we get to glory. So may we be a people, a church, that walk as children of the light, gazing at the Lord Jesus, the light of the world, casting off the shadow of sin so that others may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your word this morning. And we're so grateful for your son. We're so grateful that the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, came down to earth in the form of a man to die, to die for our sin. And Father, I pray that we would be a people, that we would be a church, that Christ Proclamation Church would grow, even this season, in walking as children of the light. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.